Ecclesiastes 8, who is like the wise, who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and a proper procedure for every matter, though a person may be weighed down by misery. Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? And no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. And no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. All this I say as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then too, I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better for those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tiara. Morning, everybody. Man, I got a little bit sniffly in worship this morning, so there you have it. So we're, uh, we're wrapping it up. We've only got a few more weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes, then we're off to the book of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John through the summer, and then this fall we'll be doing a prayer series. Really exciting times here at Neighbors Church as God is just really shaping a vibrant, beautiful, thriving community here in the city of San Diego. We're very grateful to get to be part of this alongside of you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we settle in now to the scriptures and to the thoughts of this cynic, this man who was growing jaded and resigned, life under the sun, beating him down, meaningless, empty, uncertain. Father, I pray that we as Christians in this contemporary society would be a people of joy. Even this morning in pre-gathering prayer as the, the teaching and the expression and the prayer for us to be a people of joy, May you meet us in that prayer and satisfy that prayer and fulfill that prayer that we would be a people 
who even in the midst of struggle and suffering and uncertainty would be a people who are light of heart and buoyant in spirit and joy-filled for your glory and for the good of those that you've sent us to. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you spend more than 30 minutes in any ice cream shop in the city of San Diego on any sunny afternoon, you are absolutely certain to get a robust education in moral philosophy. Uh, have any of you heard of moral philosophy? Do any of you know, just by a show of hands, what moral philosophy is? Oh, good, a few of you, good. Moral philosophy is the study of right and wrong, justice and injustice, equality, inequality, good and evil. Philosophers have spent centuries trying to define what is good, what is wrong, what is right, what is good, what is evil, what is equal, what is unequal. And in these San Diego ice cream shops on sunny afternoons, you'll find these lessons learned as you watch. Little silly story that I made up this week to illustrate the point. It all starts when this young family, a family of five, walks into the ice cream shop, and they are so excited. They've got little Maddox. He's age five. They've got little Lark, age three, an 11-month-old baby Apple. She's named in honor of Chris Martin's daughter because Coldplay changed dad's life. On leash, they've got their oversized Labradoodle named Parker. And Parker, of course, promptly begins sniffing customers in uncomfortable places. And the little chihuahua in the front of the line just goes off in a mad barking frenzy. Now the kids' eyes, little Maddox, little Lark, little Apple, they're just bursting with anticipation because mom and dad have been bribing them all morning for better behavior, just saying, if you'll just obey, we'll go get ice cream this afternoon. So they receive their cones. And then pure moral chaos breaks out. Maddox, with a look of shocked agony on his face, observes that Lark's cone has slightly more ice cream than his. And he says as much, as loudly as he possibly can for all in the shop to hear, hoping for witnesses to this travesty. Mom and dad briefly panic and then pull it together as fast as they can. They go full code red emergency protocol. Mom bows down before Maddox, explaining that Maddox, everybody got ice cream, and that everybody should enjoy their ice cream. You enjoy ice cream. And if Lark got just a tad bit more ice cream, that's okay. Maddox disagrees. His brow furrows a little bit further. Dad quickly sneaks a bite off of Lark's cone in a failed attempt to convince Maddox that his cone was the exact same size as hers the whole time. Tears burst forth from Maddox. Maddox slams his ice cream to the floor, screaming out, that's not fair. Why did she get more than me? He then turns his moral sights on his deceptive father. And he says, you lied, daddy. You, she did get more. You said we should never lie. Now mom begins to stare daggers at dad for his obvious moral ineptitude. Dad begins to glare at the ice cream server, who he blames is the source of all of this injustice. <laughs> Baby Apple, just empathizing with all the inequity of it, decides that she's going to burst into tears, and she hucks her ice cream into the back of Lark's hair. Lark immediately screams out that Baby Apple has assaulted her, and she deserves a timeout. Lark is screaming at her mom because she is in need of immediate justice. But of course, mom is busy glaring at dad, apparently unaware of her responsibility to make baby Apple pay for her crime. And there sits the 16-year-old ice cream server once again, realizing that marriage, family, and kids are something that she will never, ever commit to. <laughs> and all the while, all the while, Parker the dog, he's just going about from one dropped cone to the next. <laughs> never giving a single thought to the moral quandary storming around him as he enjoys ice cream that he's going to throw up all over the couple's new couch later that afternoon. 
and there you sit, the objective moral philosopher. And this scene as it unfolds on any given moment, sunny San Diego afternoons and ice cream shops, you begin the moral philosopher asking these questions. What is fairness? How does one determine the level of punishment for a particular crime? And who gets to carry that sentence out? Who's at fault when inequity happens? Who's the authority and the final judge of right and wrong? And most importantly, you find yourself asking, how come that dog cares less about fairness and justice? But we humans, from our earliest moments, we cannot not think about it, equality, justice. Why is that? These are the questions that Koheleth and you and I have wrestled with in our endeavors to find meaning in life, and we wrestle with it through the whole of our lives. As Koheleth, the title that he took for himself as a teacher, a gatherer of people, he sought wealth and women and wine and wisdom to find joy, to find meaning in life. And over and over and over, in every one of those contexts, no matter where he went, Koheleth was confronted with a very unfair world, a world that was in moral chaos. There is something, 8.14 of Ecclesiastes, Koheleth tells us, there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is Havel. It's meaningless. It's emptiness. It's, it's an ungraspable reality that we live in. And so Koheleth asked, why do bad things happen to good people? And he asked the even more intellectually and I think existentially painful question for us to ask, why do good things happen to bad people? Then too, I saw the wicked, verse 10 of Ecclesiastes 8, I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. Robert Alter, who's my favorite all-time Hebrew scholar forever for Hebrew nerds, he translates this particular verse so pointedly, he captures Koheleth's frustration saying, I've seen the wicked brought to the grave and from a holy place they went forth while those who did right were forgotten in the town. So Koheleth cries out, this life is not fair. I see wicked people and they die, and then they're buried. And you know what? They are remembered at their funerals as people gather to celebrate their lives. And they gather in holy places as if they belonged in those holy places, in the very cities where they did their wickedness. And then I see those who lived their lives righteously and obedient their whole life, oppressed by the very wicked people that they are currently celebrating, and they are forgotten. Not even a proper funeral set up for them. This, Koheleth cries, this is not fair. And to add injury to insult and to really salt the existential wound of Koheleth's moral heart, he observed that the wicked would go on in this world seemingly unpunished. And the lack of sentencing, the lack of repercussion for their wicked doing inspired more wicked behavior. Verse 11, Ecclesiastes 8, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. And so here, in a not-so-subtle way, Koheleth points an accusing finger at God. And he says, because there's no sentence for crimes of the wicked, wicked schemes increase. For Koheleth, when he looked out on this world, the God who claimed to be a God of justice and equity and goodness was glaringly incompetent in his do-gooding and in his wrong rectifying. And so too, that is often the cry that you and I make as we look at the world and as we endure the experiences of moral chaos that we are surrounded by. How many of you, just by a show of hands so I know I've got you with me, have ever said, that's not fair? 
So there we sit in the ice cream shop with Maddox and Koheleth a millennia ago and modern life saying, this is not fair. Where's God in the midst of all of this? Why is there so much wrong in the world? Why has wrong happened to me? Why have I done wrong and not been punished? Some of us might say in honesty, where is justice? How are we to make our way through the moral fog that is our existence in a world that has gone completely awry? What are we to do with our own personal moral angst and our personal confusion? Koheleth, I think, was hedging on jadedness. I think that this man was leaning towards resignation and completely giving up. But despite that, even in his thoughts of resignation and jadedness, he continues to offer us, late Western moderns, markers of clarity. He gives us sort of signposts on our way through the moral fog in the midst of all of this moral complexity. Koheleth still gives us, even in our text today, a way forward. Three way markers of clarity in a morally complex world. Three way markers to take us to the back of our teaching and communion this morning. Three way markers of clarity in a morally complex world. Number one, wrestling and waffling. Wrestling and waffling. Number two, our moral longings actually point to a moral lawgiver. Never forget that. And number three, at the end of the day, we all have to surrender to what we know. Wrestling and waffling is a way marker of clarity through the moral fog. Moral longings are pointing to a moral lawgiver that is there ultimately guiding us. And at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, you and I will have to surrender to what we can know and what we do know. And what we cannot know, we have to surrender. Everybody tracking with that? Let's walk through this just a little bit. Wrestling and waffling. Koheleth. His worldview was formed by this innate and internal sense of right and wrong. And he could not deny his conscience. He could not deny this sense of a moral universe and a just structure by which all humanity should live. And don't forget, Koheleth was a church kid. Koheleth was steeped in the teachings of Torah and the prophets and the wisdom literature. His faith traditions teachings had formed his worldview. And his faith traditions teachings had led him to believe that fairness would ultimately make its way into the human experience. Justice would have its way according to the scriptures that he built his life on. But when he looked up from his Bible and looked at the reality of the world around him, he said, I don't see that. It doesn't line up with what I read in my quiet time this morning. And so this tension of the internal sense of right and wrong and the external teachings of Scripture, it caused an internal civil war to erupt in our brother. A wrestling and a waffling with God. We get a glimpse of this wrestling as Koheleth literally contradicts himself in the course of just a couple sentences. Verses 12 through 13 of the text, Ecclesiastes 8. Notice what he says. Although a wicked person who commits 100 crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God. So you can hear him. He's like, but it will go better with those who fear God, even though the wicked people can get away with a whole lot for a really long time. Those who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked who do not fear God, well, it won't go well with them and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. Did you see this? He, he's waffling. He says the wicked man can commit 100 crimes and live a long time. And then in the very next time, he says the wicked won't live very long. Which is it? This guy is in it with God in the morning of his reading time and in his prayer time. He's wrestling, he's waffling here. 
just like you and I, just like you and I. We inherently know that there's a moral structure to the universe that every human must live by. We know that there is right and wrong. And like Koheleth, for those of us represented in this room, I would assume mostly Christians on a Sunday morning, we have this gigantic book sitting on our laps and it's full of moral stories and moral codes and laws and conduct. And it all seems to say, if you live this way, this will happen. And if you do this, that will happen. And then we look up at reality and that is not what is happening. And that is not what has happened to us. And that is not what has happened to others. And so we find ourselves looking up from our Bibles and wrestling with our internal sense of right and wrong in a moral universe gone awry. And we wrestle. We waffle back and forth. We contradict ourselves. I cannot tell you how many times I've been through this progression virtually daily in my walk with Jesus. You know what? Maybe everybody should just live however they want because who cares? Maybe I should just do whatever I want. I'm done fighting sin. I'm done resisting temptation because I'm not seeing the repercussions for everybody else out there in this wicked world. Wicked is kind of a relative term anyway, isn't it? You know, I'm not really wicked. I might be kind of bad sometimes, but I'm not wicked. No big deal, right? And then 20 minutes later as I'm going through this wrestling match with God, Wait, no, 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 no. I know that's not right. Something's off. I know there's definitely judgment coming. I know wickedness ultimately wrecks everything. I mean, actually, if I think about it, I've experienced the pain of wicked and reckless living in my old life. Who am I kidding? It's got to be better to live in obedience to God. Oh, God, help me to obey you. 20 further minutes later, yes, definitely. The wicked are not going to live long. Their days will be short. I'm going with God, just like Koheleth. The wicked can do whatever they want. They live forever, and then I end my time. The wicked are certainly not going to live forever. Just this waffling back and forth. And then this is what happens. I finally get settled. Okay, I'm good with God. God's good. God's going to take care of this. God is just. And then I get on my news feeds for the morning. (laughs) Or I experience something that day where I get that infuriating email that is so unfair And I'm cast right back into that moral complexity and that wrestling match starts all over every single day. And this beloved wrestler with God is so very, very good. It is so good and important and crucial that this wrestling match for some of us who are wired the way I'm wired, this daily wrestling match must take place. Why? Wrestling is a mark of moral health, dearest friends. Wrestling is a mark that you still care. Wrestling and waffling with God when you look at the broken world and our broken experiences and you say he's a good God, wrestling with that means that your soul has not been cauterized. You are still sensitive to the contours of God's kingdom and God's will and God's heart in this world. And the reality is for us, friends, just half of winning the war is knowing this. There is no unicorn at the end of the rainbow where we stop wrestling with God in a broken world. We will wrestle until heaven finally comes to earth because of the moral brokenness of this place. We will wrestle with this. And it is this wrestling that is the refining and the defining of our faith. Friends, wrestling is where real prayer and surrender are actually happening I know most of us as contemporary Christians are accustomed to sitting down over our dinner and saying, Father, in Jesus' name, bless this food to our bodies. Let it nourish and strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen. And that's our prayer. Do you want to know what real prayer is in the context of Koheleth and a wounded world? Why is this happening? Where are you? This is not fair. This doesn't feel right. I want to do what I want. No, I don't want to do what I want. Yes, I do want to do what I want. No, I don't. Please help me. That is the wrestling of a faith-filled Christian. 
That is an honorable prayer life, and wrestling is worship. You know, our, our brother, gosh, that guy is gifted. Joshua, I'm just snobber, snobbery, slobbery, worshiping up here in tears because of the beauty. And then I step back out into the world, and I see the reality of this world, and I just go, wrestle, and that is worship. That is prayer. That is where God is drawing us. So we come into the mountaintop moments on Sunday mornings to go back into the wrestling match. And I want to assure you this morning that for so many Christians raised in the evangelical community, that's sort of our tributary tribe, this struggle has been mistaken for a loss of faith, and it's not. Or not being a good follower of Jesus. As somebody who had no church context at age 21, when I came into the church and began asking just what I thought were honest questions, like, does Genesis really mean this? Are they really, like, did Job really write on dinosaurs? I don't think that actually happened. There was this sort of sense of, like, pressure, like, don't ask those types of questions. Uh-oh, don't ask those questions. And I was like, like wait, why can't I ask questions? Why, I, uh, strange. I think... Some communities, out of fear and need for control, have taught that this wrestling and waffling is actually a dangerous thing, that questions aren't to be asked, that doubts aren't to be explored. I would say, now, having led in these communities for over 20 years, one of the biggest problems in the Western church for the last 100 years has been an overly reductionistic approach to very complex issues. This is why so many are leaving the church. We look at a complex world that's morally confusing, and the church offers these silly, reductionistic answers that don't make any sense. Rather than the communities and the teachers of the church and the culture of the church thinking carefully and acknowledging there is nuance and difficulty and complexity in every single scenario, the church, for some reason, has defaulted to this sort of, let me give you this handbook with shallow, overly simplistic, sort of pat you on the head, black and white answers in a very gray world, go pray more and believe much better. And we're like, what? I'm out. At least with my non-believing friends, we can have an honest conversation about the mess that this is, and it's not a blessed mess. It's a broken mess. Reductionistic answers to complex problems are not answers at all. The complexities of this morally wounded world must be navigated within each scenario uniquely. What you are facing has to be navigated through intensive prayer, not only prayer alone, but prayer with community, and through the scriptures, and through a lot of study and a lot of conversations. And the church, the church, we, the community of God's people, we must be the primary place where wrestling and questioning and doubting and waffling take place. When somebody in your community group sits down and says, you know what, I'm really wrestling with the sexual ethic of Jesus. We're not supposed to go, no. We're supposed to say, me too. I'm really wrestling with the nature of the authority of Scripture. I'm really wrestling with the pain and the suffering. I'm really wrestling with the question of evil. We're supposed to go, me too. Because that's where prayer is born. That's where community is fostered. That's where worship begins to happen. That's down in the trenches. And actually, it's so important for those of you that are in that real waffling wrestling stage, so many of you, it is so important that you have a godly community around you that will help provide bumpers, like bowling balls as you're heading for the strike, like just bumpers to sort of keep you kind of on track in a healthy lane of navigation. And this is why at Neighbors, we press community every single week. This is why we do pre-gathering prayer, community groups, basics, month-long spiritual trainings, all to be a place to foster questions and find clarity in the if you're wrestling this 
morning, well done, welcome to real Christianity. That's just the way it is. If you're resigning yourself to a jaded sort of giving up, you just quit wrestling, I want you to understand if you just quit wrestling, you will never be able to reconstruct. The Spirit will never reconstruct through the Scriptures and His community what you have deconstructed in a healthy way. If you stop wrestling, you'll never reconstruct what God wants to build you into. Wrestling is the constructive building process. And if there's no wrestling, you need to check your heart because you may be growing subtly comfortable with hard-heartedness, cauterization, jadedness, resignation, cynicism. You're becoming less than you were ever intended to be because you're distancing yourself from God. Wrestle. To struggle, doubt, waffle, wrestle, and question is key to a robust Christian faith. Our wrestling is a way marker that we're on the journey through the fog in the right direction because we care and we are crying out to the God who cares. Number two. I'm going to get a little bit philosophical this morning. So moral longings point to a moral lawgiver. Waymaker. Waymaker. That's a great tune. Way marker in the fog. I want you to notice something about Koheleth here. He acknowledges throughout all of the book and even in this chapter that there is a God in the midst of the mess. In verses one through nine, we didn't have time to get into it. It's terribly complicated Hebrew passage, actually. But Koheleth essentially instructs his listeners to comply with the king, to comply with rulers, to comply with even wicked rulers because Koheleth, like a good Jewish man, believed that God mediated his authority through human authorities. By the way, so did St. Paul. The church still believes that God mediates his ultimate authority through human authority, even broken and wicked authority. That's an entire sermon series in and of itself. But Koheleth did continue to acknowledge that throughout the book and in this chapter that God does intervene in the lives of the wicked and the righteous. He wrestles back and forth with it. He literally says in verse 17 of Ecclesiastes, then I saw all that God has done, all that God has done. What Koheleth didn't say is, well, obviously there's bad players. Politics is a mess. Evil people are in power. Maybe there's no God. You don't find that anywhere in the biblical record. It never entered his mind that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to wicked people, so maybe there's no God. This is crucial for us in this contemporary moment because our society, we are the first society in the history of humanity to consider as a reality the possibility that the universe is the way it is because there's no God, because there is no moral structure to this universe. The scientific revolution, rapid secularization of our society. It's given you and I as modern people the option to see all this moral chaos as nothing more than, well, obviously it's morally chaotic because it's just a gigantic cosmic accident where the fittest survive and the weak are destroyed. Now, because we swim in this culture, it's easy for us to sometimes maybe look at this world and say, you know what, the problem of evil is solved by saying there is no good God. And maybe you're in that space, maybe you're in that headspace this morning. But I want you to be ruthlessly honest with how you actually live your life. Because to consistently live in a world where there is no moral structure and there is no moral law giver, it contradicts that innate sense that we all have deep down in our bones that we're born with. Maddox at age five, that's not fair. We just know it. I'm going to illustrate using an example from secular society and a thinker that I've been following for a number of years now, uh, Yuval Harari. He's a historian, Jewish historian, uh, and he has a very, very incisive philosophical bent, and he is an ardent atheist, and he lives consistently with his atheism. 
So a few years back, his best-selling book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, just went through the roof stellar. And in that book, Harari is deconstructing a whole bunch of sort of Western models of thinking, but he's doing it consistently from an atheistic point of view. He's not borrowing the morality of Christianity. He's saying if we live in an atheistic worldview, here's the way that we should actually think about this idea of equality amongst humans and human rights. And what What Harari does in that book is he goes after, in one chapter, the American ideal of human rights as written in the Declaration of Independence. Let me read this for you. The original Declaration of Independence reads this way. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Everybody should, you know, they were saying, everybody recognizes this, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Those that are among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But remember, Harari believes there are no rights endowed by a creator. And you guys can just leave that slide up there for a bit. For Harari, there is no such thing as a God who gives human dignity. There is no such thing as a God who makes humans equal in his eyes. There are only blind evolutionary processes in a cycle of survival or demise. There are no rights in biology, friends. There's just stronger or weaker biological beings destroying each other. Now, because Harari lives consistently with that, he looks at the world and he says, the idea that all humans are equal is a myth. If you're not giving yourself over to jadedness and cynicism, you may find yourself squirming a little bit right now. Reading Harari, I find myself going, oh my gosh, I can't even, he wrote this publicly. Oh, and Obama and Oprah were like, this is the best book ever. I was like, did they even read this? No, Not carefully, not thoughtfully. Harari then goes on and he rewrites the Declaration of Independence consistent with his atheistic worldview. He writes this, the second slide. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men evolve differently, and they're born with certain mutable, that means changeable characteristics, that are among these life in the pursuit of pleasure. His rewrite of the endowment of rights removes God from the equation. And Harari says, look, let's be honest about this. Here's how the Bill of Rights should be written. All of us evolved differently. We're all not equal because we were all born with changing characteristics of strength and intelligence. And those who are stronger, smarter, and faster, they will gain life and pleasure at cost to the weaker, less intelligent, and slower. Rights, morality, and equality. These ideas don't enter the equation because they don't exist in a randomized universe of chemicals and accidents. That should make us very uncomfortable. In a world where there is no God, a moral lawgiver, there's no such thing as oppression and injustice. There's just stronger biological creatures destroying weaker biological creatures. Let me just drive this home. In a world without a moral lawgiver, without God, women's rights don't matter. Black lives don't matter. The poor don't matter. Social hierarchies don't matter. Economic inequities don't matter. Because without God, there is no objective moral standard to live by. The moral universe is a figment of our imagination. And if you're like me, you find yourself not able to stomach that. It bothers me deeply. But what we find in a modern culture trained by the scientific revolution and secularized, trying to divorce itself from God, is you find that our culture lives in this awkward contradiction right now. It's it's a pained contradiction. We're driven by a desire for equality and justice, justice for all. But we don't want the God who gives us the desire for justice and equity. We want right and wrong according to our terms, but we surely don't want a God who says that's right and that's wrong according to his terms. 
We want the moral impulses of our society to carry forth justice across the land, but our society directly and systematically refuses to acknowledge the God that created the just system that we want. Counterintuitively, for you sitting in this room with Bibles on your laps who confess Christ, this is actually, I have found it very comforting to sit in the tensions and the contradictions of our culture. Because whether I was out walking with my brothers and sisters in the riots during the days, during the parades, or whether I'm looking at the impulse of our society towards equity, be that economic, be that social equity, whether I'm looking at little Maddox in the ice cream shop who's saying this isn't fair, I actually take great comfort in the fact that right there, I know that that longing for that fairness is a pointer For me, an unarguable pointer that there must be an objective lawgiver who created a moral universe in which we live because I can't live any other way. Now, of course, I, we may wrestle like Koheleth with God's timing and the way that he brings about equality and justice, but I always, we have the comfort of knowing that the very fact that we long for moral structure points us to a moral structure creator. And that is one of the primary reasons that I've not been able to deconstruct my Christianity and leave. In all these years of asking questions and being pressed not to ask questions and really trying to figure out, like, can I get myself out of this mess because the church is weird and this is really hard and I'm suffering and it doesn't make any sense. At the end of the day, when I wake up, I'm like, there has to be a God because there's this moral thing inside of me. And if there's nothing, then it's just randomized chemicals and, and I can't live consistently that way. So this is part of what makes sense of it all. And I may wrestle with that God, but at the end of the day, I personally, the only safe and the only consistent place I can live is totally surrendered to him totally surrendered to him. And this is Koheleth's third way marker through the fog. We're almost done. Surrender to what you know. Wrestle and waffle, for therein you are learning to worship your God. When you long for moral equity and social justice, just let that become a pointer in your soul that you are longing for the God who made those structures and embedded them in your system, in your soul, embedded them in your neurochemistry. It's absolutely incredible. And then finally, at the end of the day, and the only reason I can say this with any integrity, and I pray with absolute authority, is because after 25 years of walking with him, I've awakened to this reality that there is mystery that I will not comprehend in this life. Oh, what a sweet surrender that has been for me. Because in agony, I believed with all my heart I could put the pieces together analytically. In my little myopic 80 years right here in this little dust ball that I am, I could fathom and comprehend the vastness of the universe. Surrender does not mean this morning for you and I that we stop wrestling and questioning and searching. It means that we eventually recognize we are tiny specks of dust. That even if you were to live a hundred, or if the longevity scientists of the modern moment have their way with us, maybe, maybe even I could live 120, 120 years. That's what I'm praying for. Praying to be like Moses, to live 120 years. So let's say I get another hundred years on top of where, no, 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 80 years on top of where I'm at already. I will, you will, you will. Never stop wrestling, but you will never perfectly comprehend the works of an infinite God in an immeasurable universe who sees every detail from the beginning to the end. You just won't. The smartest, most intelligent, most well-read, philosophically incisive, bright minds on this planet. Some of them may attempt, many of them throughout history have attempted, saying, I figured it out. I get it. 
here's why the world is morally complex. And in our social moment, the scientists will say it's because there is no God. It's just a bunch of cosmic accidents to which we all say, oh, it's just, I don't, mm, it doesn't make sense. And you're not living consistently with that because you keep drawing on all the moral foundations of Christianity to live your life. Not fair. I call your bluff. The smartest may say, I figured it out. And Kohala says they're fools. They're fools. They know nothing. Ours is an age marked by self assured arrogance. But followers of Jesus, at the end of the day, yes, we struggle, we wrestle, we waffle back and forth, we read our books, we pray, we process with our community. And at the end of the day, we surrender that God is ultimately beyond our comprehension. And that doesn't mean that we walk out these doors living dejected and resigned and depressed because we'll never comprehend. According to Koheleth, he literally asks us this morning, okay, so you don't get it all. This was Koheleth, who was probably smarter than most of us in this room, definitely had more money, definitely had more experiences. And Koheleth says, okay, church, you don't get it. You can't comprehend everything that's going on in the world. You're asking why, God, this isn't fair, that isn't fair. Why did this happen? Why did that not happen? You can't comprehend it perfectly. Here's what I commend for you, church, 815. I commend to you the enjoyment of life. At the end of the day, put a smile on your face in the midst of all this suffering because there is nothing better for a person under the sun while we're living to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil, this wrestling, this waffling, all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. I reach the brink of such deep depression because I could not comprehend the unfairness of this world. And then one morning, I don't know, in the grace of God by his spirit, I just began to wake up like, if I got another 50, 60, 70 years of this, I'm just going to surrender because I don't want to live this way for the rest of my life. I could throw my temper tantrum, shake my fist at God. He's still not going to sit down and be like, Dan, let me explain to you because you're so angry everything about the universe. It's, it's never happened yet. And this, dearest friends, as we turn the corner to communion, this is what, in, this is what our king invites us to. Understand that the gospel, the good news is that the moral lawgiver, the creator of the moral universe, who loves justice and created equity, did the most and endured the most unjust, unequal event. He became one with us, number one. He entered into this to absorb our judgment into his very being, to free us from our injustice, from our oppression. He even, he even came to take our fists in his own face, our fists of anger and frustration and not being able to comprehend. Our God said, I know you don't comprehend. I know you're angry. Here, I will take that into myself. The cross is the ultimate point, and really, for the Christian, the cross is the only point of clarity in a morally confused universe. I think Koheleth, despite his jadedness, his deconstruction, his waffling, his wrestling with his God, I think he looked up from his scrolls of Torah and prophet and wisdom literature. And in all those little spaces, there's these little hints and promises of a coming Messiah, a king, who would right all the wrong in the world. And I think Koheleth, in his clearest moments throughout this book, he looks up from his scrolls at a broken world and he says, at the end of the day, I know judgment and justice is coming, so enjoy your life. Is your life going to be morally complex and confusing? 100%. Is Lark going to get more ice cream than Maddox? Every time. <laughs> because she's the favorite. No. What do we do? What do we do when it's morally complex and confusing? Kohala says, grab a beer with some buddies and weep about it and laugh about it. Talk it through. Say, I haven't figured it out. I love you guys. 
I love you and you love me and we're going to care for each other till the end of this thing. Are there terrible, 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 undescribably horrific things that are happening right now as we're sitting here in our comfortable little space here in San Diego? Are there horrible things that it seems like there's going to be no recourse for that? 100%. So we gather around the table Sunday by Sunday with the family of God and we gather this week with our communities to feast on the fact that Jesus God incarnate, the Son, was judged in our place and promised us, he promises us, that one day this judgment will come to its completion. Until then, please, whether you're 20 and you're just now beginning the agony of the analytical journey into deep Christianity, or you're my age, mid-stride, and you're like, okay, (laughs) there's some stuff I'm never going to figure out, or you're that 85-year-old saint just like walking on water, like, it's all good, it's all love in Jesus. Don't miss the gift of life by demanding moral comprehension of something that is simply incomprehensible. Let the joy, the joy of Jesus Christ, accompany you in your toil and wrestling until the days of your life under this sun come to an end where you have a promise of entering into a life where all the answers you've cried out for may or may not come in full. We don't, I, I, I know you've been told when you die and go to heaven, it will all make sense. Maybe. Maybe heaven will also have requirements of eternal submission to a God who's bigger than us in eternity. We are creatures. He will not allow us the place of creator. So the Christian responds as we wrap this up to the question of why bad things happen to good people by pointing to the cross. The worst thing imaginable, the most unequal, unjust event in history happened to the only truly good person to have ever walked this planet. Also that good things can happen to very bad people. That's you and I. The moral complexity and the clarity of the cross is that it offers freedom to you and forgiveness and ultimate good for those of us who don't deserve it. This is the lens through which we see the morally complex world. Our God on a cross, dying and resurrecting, assuring us that we are forgiven of the judgment due us and justice is coming. Would you all stand for me for the reading of our liturgy? And we'll read together. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself as the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Father, bless us as we come to the table. Give us clarity from the cross. Set at ease the one whose wrestlings this morning have worn them so thin that they feel like giving up. May they know that you have drawn them closer than they could have ever imagined in their wrestling. They think they're on the brink of leaving when in fact they're on the brink of loving you more than they ever could have imagined. Lord, set at ease the heart of your church in a suffering world. And may we be the healing balm in this place, a people of smiles, not fabricated or forced smiles, but a deep undercurrent of joy that rests in the judgment of God and trust that we are not the creator, we are creatures that wrestle and strive and go back and forth in the way we view the world and the way we read the Bible and what we see. But at the end of the day, we surrender to goodness and to love, to purity and to holiness. And so we exalt you this morning in Jesus' name.